Today I'm going to start a series teaching through the book of Romans. And I tell you, I'm excited about this. And I tell you, I heard a man say back when I was a very young Christian, I mean, uh, I don't know, just a few years after I had been born again. And he said that if you could ever understand the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, it would revolutionize your life. And so I began to start studying the book of Romans. And I bet you it was probably 15 years before I ever felt like I began to understand it. Now, I'm not saying that I've totally understood everything about it now, but I'm saying that I started getting a revelation after about 15 years of study. And now the book of Romans has become one of my favorite things to teach. And I tell you, if you do not think that the book of Romans is one of the greatest books in the Bible. If it doesn't just ring your bell, then you don't understand grace. And that's the reason it's not that exceptional to you. And so I'm going to start teaching through this. It's not going to be totally verse by verse, but I'm going to be amplifying on it and tying things together. And I tell you, this is going to be a real blessing to you. Let me first of all just say that the book of Romans, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul. You find that in the very first verse of this letter. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. Let me just real quickly mention that Paul was writing to a group of Gentile Christians in Rome. They were not Jews and they had been led to the Lord. But then people who were Jews came and began to start combining the Old Testament law that was given to the Jews with the New Testament grace that God gave the church. And it was causing confusion. And so the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to deal with this. Do converts to the Lord have to live by the Old Testament laws and all of the Jewish rituals and all of their... Uh, guidelines. And that's the reason that Paul wrote this. And so he starts off in the first few verses and gives an introduction, talks about that these Romans had, their faith had been spoken of throughout the entire world. So this church in Rome had, uh, was, was a genuine converts to the Lord. Their faith was being spoken of worldwide. And he talks about that he was longing to come unto them so that he could minister to them personally, but he felt like it was necessary to write this letter and to deal with some of these doctrinal issues before he got there. And he says he's a debtor. In verse 14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are of Rome also. And then he makes this statement in Romans 1, 16. And, and according to my thinking, this is kind of where the book of Romans begins is in this verse. And he's, he makes a statement that is radical to us today, but it was even much more radical in his day. He said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, speaking of the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, speaking in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now again, those are radical statements for us. But if you go back to the days of uh, Paul, this word gospel in the original Greek, it is a word that was used outside of the Bible. It's not like this is a word that was just invented for what Jesus did. 
But the word was seldom used. Matter of fact, I read a commentary that says, in all of the Greek literature that we have available to us, this Greek word that was translated gospel here in our English, it was only used twice outside of the Bible in all Greek literature that we have available to us. And the point for bringing that out is to say that it was a word that was used, but it was very seldom used because it was a superlative. It was an exaggeration. It was a hyperbole. People didn't talk this way because the word means good news is what it literally means. But it, it is actually more than that. It is nearly too good to be true news. It is something that is so awesome that nobody ever used this word because there was nothing in a fallen world that was so good that it was just too good to be true news. So it was a very seldom used word. But Paul took this word to describe what Jesus did and started referring to that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And when you say, man, I am not ashamed to tell people the good news about Jesus, the nearly too good to be true news. Did you know that was offensive to the people of Paul's day? Because in Paul's day, it was not good news. In Paul's day, even more so than our day, our day still has a tremendous amount of legalism and just religious stuff in it that needs to be purified and purged out of our quote-unquote Christian religion. But in Paul's day, it was much worse. And there was no good news. Instead, it was all about you got to keep this law and you got to do this. And the law never told you, it never complimented you. It never said, well, you did really good. Today you did 90% of everything. You are improving. You're getting better. Go for it. There was no encouragement in the law. The law was given to show you your sin. And if you did 99 things right and one thing wrong, the law would focus on what you did wrong and just condemn you. And it still does the same thing today. But in Jesus' day, you know, we have a modified legalistic religious system today. In Jesus' day, it was legalistic to the max. So, so much so that, you know, they took a woman taken in the very act of adultery and they brought her to Jesus and wanted Jesus to stone her to death because that's what the law prescribed. And I mean, they just lived by this and there was no good news. And for Paul to be talking about something that was so good, it was nearly too good to be true, it just immediately... Uh, countered the religious system of his day. Would to God that I had a word that I could come up with like Paul did to, you know, somehow or another designate this message of the gospel that just immediately separated this from the religious system of our day, the way that gospel did from the religious system of his day. But I'm praying that you'll get a revelation of this. I'm going to go through the book of Romans and I'm going to say this so many different ways it's going to be impossible for you to miss it. But Paul was talking about the gospel and he said, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. Here's another word that I need to redefine because the word salvation has become a religious cliche today and people just use the word saved and salvation to talk about your initial born-again experience being uh, coming from death unto life, being born again, being changed, and they use that uh, word salvation to describe it. But the Greek word for salvation here, sozo, it literally means forgiveness of sins, which again, 
Most people will accept that. But it also means deliverance from all kinds of demonic things, such as oppression and depression and things like this. And it means healing. And this exact word, salvation, was translated healed, healing, saved in many places. Let me just turn over and use one to make this point, and then I'll come back to Romans. But here in James chapter 5, it says that if any is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That was verse 14, verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. This word save right here is the word sozo, the same word that was translated salvation. And so right here, it's obvious that this isn't talking about that this sick person by anointing him with oil and the elders praying over him gets him born again. But this is talking about it will save, it will heal the sick. So this is that same Greek word and you can see by the way it was used that it applies to more than just forgiveness of sins. But it also applies to the healing of your body. It applies to deliverance from demonic stuff. It applies to prosperity as a part of our salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 and on and on I could go. Just everything that Jesus purchased for us is what the word salvation literally means. Again, religion has shrunken this down to where it only applies to the forgiveness of your sins. And they think that that's all that Jesus died to produce. And they look at healing as a extra. It's like a fringe benefit. It's only given out on a very limited basis. Whereas salvation, forgiveness of sins is for everybody, but healing is just for a few people. Our prosperity or joy or deliverance is only for a few. But in the Bible, this word salvation, it doesn't make that distinction. It applies to everything. Anything that Jesus died to produce, the thing that produces the power for that is the gospel. Understanding the grace of God, that He loves us in spite of who we are and not because of who we are. That is what gives us power to receive these things. Man, that is an awesome truth. And again, I think most people miss that when they just read this verse without thinking about what the word gospel and the word salvation means. So I can say this. If you've been truly born again, if you know for sure that you have a relationship with God, that you aren't just religious hoping that something's going to work out, assuming that something's going to work, but if you have a witness in yourself and you know that you have been born again, then if you aren't seeing the power for healing for deliverance, for prosperity, joy, peace, and all of these things happen in your life, it's because you do not understand the gospel. You might have understood it enough to be born again, but then you have fallen back in to trying to relate to God the way that an Old Testament person did. You know, there's a scripture in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, and it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means that if you got saved by putting faith in what Jesus did for you and not faith in what you are doing for Him. See, that's the gospel. That's grace. You, in other words, you didn't try and earn it, but you just came and you sang this song, Just As I Am, without one plea, and you said, Father, I don't deserve it, but I believe Jesus loved me. He died for me. I receive it, and I receive my forgiveness of sins. If you did that, 
then you should continue to receive everything else you need from God by that same standard. That's what Colossians 2, 6 is saying. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. If you could accept salvation as a free gift, you ought to accept healing as a free gift, prosperity, deliverance, joy, peace, anything that you need. But see, by and large, the body of Christ has not done this. The religious system today is not preaching the gospel the way that Paul did. They are mixing it with law, and that is not a true gospel at all. Paul went on to say this in verse 17. He said, For therein, talking about in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Notice it's not revealed from law to law, from good deed to good deed. It's faith to faith. You receive all of this by grace through faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. People who are trying to earn righteousness, right standing with God, will never have it revealed unto them. It only comes from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you are going to be just, the word just, you know, the word justified, uh, I could go into a technical definition of it, which most of you would forget, but here's my little simple layman's definition of it, which everybody can remember this. The word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's a real simple way that God isn't holding sin against you. He's not imputing sin unto you. You're clean. You're pure. And it says the just, those who are clean and pure in right standing with God, shall live by faith, not by the law. In Romans chapter 11, verse 6, you know, sometime, I'll get to this in more detail, but just jumping ahead, it says that you're either saved by your own good works or you're saved by grace, but not a combination of the two. You can't mix this together. This says that the just shall live by faith. It's only by faith that you will ever become just as if I'd never sinned in the sight of God. And then in verses 18 through 20, boy, this is powerful. I could minister on this for a week or two. I'm going to have to say some things quickly. But in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he starts talking about the wrath of God being revealed from God to every person who has ever breathed on this planet. It's an intuitive knowledge that they are a sinner. So that's what he said right here. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And if you look this up in the Greek, you know, the Greek has past tense and, and uh, different tenses to these words. And if you look this up, it's literally saying, for the wrath of God has already been revealed from heaven. It's putting it as something that is already done. You don't have to go and condemn people. They're already condemned. So he says, for the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Notice it says all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It goes on. I'm wanting to go on through, but let me, I just can't pass this up without saying it. That there are some people who say, I have no conviction over what I'm doing, that it's wrong. According to the word of God, you don't start that way. Every single person who's ever breathed on this planet has a knowledge of God. It's intuitive. It's like God put a homing signal on the inside of every one of us that just constantly 
is drawing us back to God. We have a knowledge that we've sinned, we've come short of what He made us to be, and all of these things. Now, you can deaden yourself to it, but nobody starts that way. So if you know somebody who you feel is just truly living in sin and they have no conviction whatsoever, either they're lying to you because the Word is true or they have crossed over that threshold to where they've rejected God and they're so far gone that they have no conviction that God has just turned them over to a reprobate mind. It has to be one of those two things. But for people who say that there's nothing wrong with all of these things that the Bible says are wrong, they are either reprobate now or they are absolutely lying to you. And in most cases, I believe that people are just denying this inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But it is there. So again, it goes back and he says, For the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Notice it said in them, not to them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Boy, these are powerful scriptures. This is saying God revealed Himself from heaven inside, in them, of every sin, every iniquity. They know these things intuitively. It doesn't matter if anybody's ever come and preached the gospel to them or not, whether they've ever read the Bible. Intuitively, everybody knows this. And it says, even His eternal power and Godhead. In other words, this isn't just some, you know, very vague, uh, hard-to-understand thing. People on a heart level know that there is a God. And even His eternal power and Godhead. The word Godhead here is talking about Trinity. Again, they may never use the word Trinity, but people have this concept that God is not only in heaven, but that He is here with us right now. And they have this concept of a Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I recently was looking through some of my Vietnam pictures, and I have a picture of a temple that was right outside of my brigade headquarters in Vietnam. And there was this temple, and it's about, I don't know, three to five stories tall. And it was so old, it predated Christianity by about 500 years. So before the gospel reached Vietnam, here was this temple that is in three parts. And it's so close to each other that you'd nearly have to turn sideways to scoot in between these three temples. And it was so old, it was decaying. Trees were growing out of the top of it and stuff. But you could see three distinct temples just, boom, right there together. And I asked about it, and they said that it predated Christianity by 500 years. And yet it was a worship system that believed in one God that manifested Himself in three parts. It's right what this is saying. It, they understood even His eternal power and Godhead. Now, I'm not saying that they, they worshipped Him properly. I don't know enough about it to say one way or the other. It could have been a total perversion. It could have been totally demonic what they were doing. But it does reflect that in their heart they had this knowledge about a trinity at least hundreds of years before ever anybody ever came and brought this revelation that is revealed in the Word of God that we call the trinity. So this shows that, see, people on a heart level 
They know more than what they realize. But most people just deny what they know in their heart and they go by logic and they let other people and the crowd, the herd mentality control them and people suppress and beat down this knowledge of God. But in their heart, they know it's true. And just for time's sake, I'm going to try and start speeding up a little bit here and I'm going to summarize some things. But after he makes this point that they already know his eternal power and Godhead, that they are without excuse, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, Then in verse 21, he begins to show that even though they had this knowledge, you can deaden yourself to it. Or as the scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can deaden yourself to this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. It's not something that happens just one time. It's a progressive type of thing. And he gives you these progressive steps in Romans chapter 1 verse 21. He says, because that when they knew God, when they had this revelation and were sensitive to it, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Right there in that one verse are four things that you have to do in sequence to deaden yourself to this intuitive knowledge that God placed on the inside of every person. You know, I've got a teaching Uh, I think it's a five-part teaching that deals with this one verse. You can go to our website. You can find it. It's entitled, Discover the Keys to Staying Full of God. I tell you, that's one of my favorite things to teach right there. And then it goes on and it shows other steps that people take away. It says in verse 22, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They quit being led by what God has put in their heart and they started just operating out of their intellect. And today you will find this same thing happen. People will try and make believing God and trusting the Word of God as being for the ignorant, for the foolish. But they will relate intellect and wisdom to people that, you know, get away from the stuff of the Bible and these myths about Noah's flood and about uh, Jonah being swallowed by a whale and stuff. I tell you what, I believe the Word of God. And um, you can sit here and argue, but you're just too late to convince me. It's already working. I've seen miracles. I've seen my son raised from the dead. I've seen multiple people raised from the dead. I'm experiencing power that most people aren't because I believe these things and they don't. They profess themselves to be wise, but they have become a fool. And they change the glory of God into an image made like unto corruptible man. This is talking about idol worship. And it talks about people, how they just started walking away. And it goes on. And, and look at this. I, this is kind of incidental to the point I'm making. But because of the situation we find ourselves in today in our society, this needs to be said. And so I'm going to say it right here. It says in verse... 26, it says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's talking about lesbianism. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another, man working with man, that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Are just. It was a just response. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication. Fornication is just any type of illicit sexual 
behavior, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud. Notice proud is listed as one of these terrible ungodly traits. Today that is embraced and promoted. Boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents is listed right in here with fornication and wickedness and covetousness, murder, all of these things. Disobedience to parents is just nearly the rule of the day in our society. In verse 31, without understanding, covenant breakers. Boy, is that descriptive of our day and age, covenant breakers. Boy, today a person's word doesn't mean much of anything. Without natural affection. The word natural affection here, if you study it in the Greek, is talking about uh, love for family and kindred. You know, used to, blood was thicker than water. And I mean, people would stay loyal to a family member uh, nearly to their own hurt and stuff. But today, boy, you don't see that at all. They are without natural affection, implacable. That means that they are, you cannot pacify them, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God... Now notice, see, this goes all the way back to those verses earlier where he said there's an intuitive knowledge of God. He's revealed His wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And it says in this 32nd verse, "...they know the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them." This is descriptive of our day and age. And one of the things I was wanting to point out, that lesbianism, homosexuality, and all of these other terrible things that are listed right here are listed as like something that is a result of people just being given over to a reprobate mind. Now what that's describing, a reprobate mind, means that John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. None of us just seek the Lord on our own. We say things like, I found the Lord. The truth is, God found you. God wasn't the one that was lost. You were lost. God found us. He reveals Himself. He draws us unto Himself. And if God quits drawing you, if He turns you over to this reprobate mind, it means that He's not going to convict you. He's just going to let you go. He's going to let you live like an animal. That is not a good thing. Because you can't come to the Father except the Holy Spirit draws Him. Right here, all of these things show that there is this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong on the inside of every person, but you can deaden yourself to it. You can walk away from it. And so that's what He shows in Romans chapter 1. And then in Romans chapter 2, this is an oversimplification, but in Romans chapter 2, He begins to show that this is not only true of those that have never heard about the gospel that have never heard the Bible preached. But in Romans chapter 2, he shows that the religious people are doubly guilty because you not only have this intuitive knowledge of what God has put on the inside of every person that has ever breathed on this planet, but you also have the Word of God and you also have the law and all of these things. So you are doubly guilty. And I believe it's Luke chapter 12 verse 48 that says, "...unto whomsoever much is given..." of him shall much be required. And if you have a greater revelation, if you not only have this intuitive knowledge, but if you also have the Word of God and the truth of God's Word that has been shown unto you, that makes you doubly guilty. You have nothing to stand on. 
you are especially accountable unto God. And then in Romans chapter 3, it comes back and it combines these two. Not only are the people that have never heard the Word of God accountable for the revelation that they have inside, but then those who have heard the Word of God not only have the intuitive knowledge, but the double revelation. And in Romans chapter 3, he just sums it all up by saying, Therefore we are all guilty before God. Jew and Gentile, religious and non-religious person, every single person already knows that they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me just take some of these verses out of Romans chapter 3. And in verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now this is not talking about that there's nobody seeking God. This is talking about just in themselves. Without the aid of God, without the Holy Spirit drawing them on their own, we are all guilty before God. Every one of us have sinned. And so it says they are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this is basically just summarizing everybody. Jew and Gentile, religious, non-religious, people that have been exposed to the Bible, people that haven't been exposed to the Bible, we're all guilty. Some people by just violating their conscience, this intuitive knowledge. Other people by violating their conscience and the Word of God. But we all stand guilty. And so it sums it up in verse 23 by saying, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There isn't a single person that can stand before God and say, I'm righteous and I don't deserve to go to hell. Every one of us deserves judgment and not punishment. And this, there is this intuitive knowledge on the inside of every person. That again is what Romans chapter 1 verse 18 begins to start revealing. And so he's basically making these same points all the way from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through Romans chapter 3. And after Romans chapter 3, now he'll begin to start showing how that since everybody's got this intuitive knowledge that they need God, that you don't need to condemn them. Instead, what you need to do is to show people the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. And in Romans chapter 4, that's what he begins to do. But there's some things said right here in Romans chapter 3 as he's in the process of making every person guilty before God so that you can't earn your salvation. You just have to humble yourself and receive salvation by grace through faith. In the process of making that, he said some things right here in Romans chapter 3 that I've just got to read to you. So in Romans 3, 19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. The purpose of the law wasn't to produce salvation. All it could do was show you your need for salvation. It could show you how guilty you were. And that's what this is saying. That it stopped your mouth. It stopped your excuses. And it made you guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't given to make you justified 
in the sight of God, or just as if I'd never sinned was my little layman's definition for that. It wasn't given to cleanse you of sin, but it was given to show you a knowledge of sin. It will always point your attention towards your failures, towards all of the things that you've done wrong. If there was a hundred things that you needed to do and you did 99 right, the law will not give you a single compliment. It won't pat you on the back. It won't say you're doing better than you've ever done. All it'll do is show you the one place that you've missed it in. Therefore, every person who is living by the Old Testament law is a person who is living under guilt and condemnation. In verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is saying that the Old Testament law prophesied that there was coming a new covenant. This was communicated to Moses. It was communicated to Abraham. It was communicated to David. David, Jeremiah wrote about this new covenant. It was quoted over in Hebrews chapter 8, but it talks about in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 that there was coming a new covenant. God was going to do a new thing. He was going to take the law and put it in a person's heart. They wouldn't have to regulate themselves by these outward rules and regulations and constantly be measuring themselves to see if they measured up. But instead, there would be this intuitive knowledge. And in Hebrews chapter 8, where it quotes that, it even says that their sins and iniquities will I be remember no more, that I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Man, those are awesome things. Most religious people just by default go back to the Old Testament law and think that we have to do all of these things in order to be accepted with God. And that was never the purpose of the law. It says here that it was only given to give, stop your mouth, to make you guilty, to show sin, to give you a knowledge of your sin, but it was completely unable to produce right standing with God. And that was prophesied under the Old Testament law. In verse 22, it says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. In other words, the righteousness that he's talking about that's available now is not the righteousness of the Old Testament law. It's superior to that. It's literally the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ. It's not your righteousness, but it's a God-given righteousness. And this is what's available. And then in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we often take that. I do this myself to make a point that every single person has come short of what they're supposed to be and that they need God in their life. They need a righteousness which comes from God and not the puny righteousness that you produce by your own goodness and your own good works. And so I, we often take that out of context, really, and say that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. And that's not a wrong statement. It's true, and that's what this is saying. But the real point that's being made, this is not a complete sentence. If you'll notice, Romans 3.23 says there is a colon there, or a semicolon, and it said, goes on to say, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the point that's being made isn't that everybody has sinned and come short of the glory of God, but it's using that truth in the same way that all of us are in the same boat. Every one of us has sinned and come short of what God wanted us to be in the same way Every single person has also been freely 
justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The point that's being made is not that all are sinners, but it's the point that in the sense that every one of us have fallen and come short of the glory of God, likewise, every one of us has had God provide salvation for us. Now, it, you have to combine this with some other scriptures. It's not that everybody's already saved. It goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, 8, that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And only then, when you put faith in what Jesus has provided for you, does this righteousness become yours. But the point that's being made is that, see, not, it's not that some people need a little bit of salvation. Other people need a lot of salvation. Some people are really close on their own and Jesus just makes up the difference. No, all of these things that Romans 1, 2, and 3 was saying that God has condemned all of us, every one of us have come short of His standard. Another way of saying this in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You could say all have sinned and come short of who Jesus is. Jesus is the standard. I'm not the standard. It doesn't matter if you're holier than I am. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in the same way that every one of us is short of what God intended us to be, which is Jesus, likewise, every one of us is in the same boat and therefore, the same salvation that Jesus purchased through His death and resurrection applies to every one of us. I often use this example. I tell people to imagine that you're standing before God. And if He walked up to you and says, What makes you worthy to enter into heaven? How would you respond? And you know, if you would say, Well, I went to church and I paid my tithes, and I'm a good person, and I read the Bible, and I tried to help people, and I did the best that I could. Did you know any of those answers would send you straight to hell? And I know some of you may be shocked, saying, well, I don't understand that. Those are good things. But see, it doesn't matter. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. On God's test, you can't make 99 and pass. You either have to make a hundred, which none of us have done, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, or you have to put faith in a Savior. And, and Jesus and what He did for you is the only goodness and the only claim to right standing with God that you have. So see, if a person is saying, well, I, I believe that Jesus, you know, just made up my deficiencies, but really I'm a good person and I know God loves me because I, at my core, am a very good person, then I'm not sure that you're truly born again. This is saying that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and therefore all of us are in, in need of the exact same salvation that Jesus has to offer. There is no combination of your goodness plus uh, God's goodness, you know, and you mix the two together. If you try and say, well, I provide the basics and at my core, I've really done pretty good and I believe that Jesus is going to make up any deficit, then you would die and go to hell because your faith is in yourself. You can't do that. You have to completely come to this place that Romans 3, 23 and 24 is talking about that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice in verse 25, it says that you are, that God is declaring his righteousness for the remission of your sins. You can't stand there on your righteousness, on your goodness. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. It is, un, it is defiled. It's unable to stand in the presence of God. You can't stand on your righteousness. You need His righteousness committed unto you. And it says that God has set forth Jesus to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. The word propitiation means atoning sacrifice through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus is what makes you accepted with God. Not your own actions through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. See, Paul here in the 25th verse says, it's His righteousness that makes you in right standing with God. And then in verse 26, he just reemphasizes that to say, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. He's underscoring that it's not your goodness. It's not your right standing. It's what Jesus has done for you. And He's the one that is the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. And then verse 27 says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Did you know that that verse right there is what caused the Reformation? Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther was struggling with how do you have relationship with God. He was doing all of the things. He was a monk in the Catholic Church. He was actually at the Vatican. And, you know, I, I've heard varying stories on this. I'm sure every one of you have the exact right answer. But I'm just telling you, this is what I've read about this. And this is my understanding. But he was at the Vatican. He was climbing up a set of stairs that they did penance on, and he was doing it on his knees, and every step he was saying, uh, Hail Mary or Our Father or whatever it is that they do. And as he was going through all of this, it just, I mean, came to him. He had been studying the Word and getting glimpses of this, but it just came to him as he was doing this that it is foolish to believe that doing some action of penance or something was ever going to make him right with God. And this verse Romans 3.27 came to his mind that says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of God. And then verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And God brought those scriptures back to Martin Luther and right there in the process of crawling up these stairs on his knees, he got a revelation of salvation by grace through faith, putting faith in God's grace, and he stopped right there. He went home, he wrote his thesis, tacked it on the door, and the Protestant Reformation began. And I mean millions and millions and millions of people have been born again because of this truth that we're sharing right here. I'm telling you that this is what you need in order to come into right relationship with God. It's amazing today how blinded people are to this and they just assume that you've got to 
conform to all of these rules. And there are many people that are in a sense like on this religious treadmill just doing all of these things and getting nowhere. It doesn't accomplish a blooming thing. And you are trying to do all of this stuff when the simple answer is that Jesus just died for your sins, has paid for everything, and if you will receive Him and make Him your Lord, then He will give you salvation and make you righteous and justify you as a gift. It has nothing to do with your actions. It has everything to do with whether or not you receive Jesus as your Lord. Now, I know that there's some people that struggle with those things, but I'm telling you that if a person would follow what this is saying right here, then when they make Jesus their Lord, God changes them on the inside, and then they begin to start living holy as a byproduct of relationship with God, not a way to obtain relationship with God. Those are huge, huge differences. Somebody says, well, what's the difference? Either way, you're supposed to do what's right. The, way, the motive behind your actions are all important. You know, one scripture that makes this very clear is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, where it says, If I give all of my goods to feed the poor, or even if I give my body to be burned and don't have charity or God's kind of love, it profits me nothing. That shows you that you could do the right thing, but if your motive is wrong, it profits you nothing. If the reason you are living holy is to try and appease an angry God and earn His favor and earn His relationship, then you are doing it with the wrong motive and it profits you nothing. But if you receive relationship with God as just a free gift and you just receive it by faith in what Jesus has done, then God changes you and you start living holy now as a fruit and not the root of salvation. It's totally different. And again, I thank God that He called me to preach this gospel of grace because if somebody else was preaching this, and there are lots of other people that really emphasize the grace of God, but if somebody else was preaching this who had just lived a terrible, sinful life and was you know, living in adultery or homosexuality, murder, lying, stealing, or whatever, and they were preaching grace, people would just immediately discount it and say, well, I know why he's preaching grace. It's so that he can live a sinful life and get by with all of this stuff. But you cannot sit there and say that I am using these teachings on grace to excuse my sin. Now, again, I pray that you understand what I'm saying. I, this is not the way I normally talk. But just like the Apostle Paul said, sometimes he'd say, since you're carnal, I'll just get down on your level. And here's the way carnal people think. And he would explain things. In a sense, that's what I'm doing. I would never boast about my holiness because, you know, I've said this often, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm now 64 years old. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I have lived a super holy life. But you know what? Because I understand grace. I've still sinned and come short of the glory of God. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. And you know what? I have lived a holier life than most people, but I've, I've sinned. I've come short of the glory of God. And according to James 2, 10, if I keep everything except one thing, I become guilty of the whole deal. It's like if you could imagine a huge glass in front of you and me, 
it wouldn't matter if you just make a tiny hole in the thing or if you drive a truck through that glass. If you break the glass, you have to replace the entire thing. That's the way God's standard is. There may be 10,000 laws in it, but it's not you just do the best you can. You keep 9,000 of the 10,000 and you get in. No, you have to keep 10,000 out of 10,000, or if you only keep 9,999, if you miss it at one point, which all of us have, then you become guilty of the whole thing. And you uh, are exempt from righteousness with God. When you understand this, see, this just takes away boasting. I would never sit there and say, well, I'm better than this person over here because, man, I, it's just varying degrees of a sinner. I'm seeking God. I'm living holy as much as I know how, but I don't do it properly. And when I fail, instead of coming under condemnation, I praise God for His grace. I praise God that I am standing righteous with Him. And just like this said, I conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Today, religion has missed this point and they put in all of these rules and regulations. You have some denominations that you've got to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus. They won't even accept in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And it's got to be done just exactly this way or you aren't born again. Well, the thief on the cross wasn't water baptized in the name of Jesus or the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And Jesus said he would be with him that day in paradise. The same thing happened in the 8th chapter of Acts. In the 10th chapter, Cornelius and his family were all born again and spoke in tongues, which Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And so it was evident that they were spoke, spoke in tongues, and it was all before they were water baptized. In the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, where uh, Peter got called on the carpet by the church in Jerusalem because he went into Gentiles and shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Peter rehearsed how he knew that God had accepted them, and he talked about how they repented, how they prayed, how they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. He used all of those things as verifications that they had truly been born again. He never one time mentioned water baptism. If he would have been in one of the denominations that exist today, I guarantee you that wouldn't have proven anything. You've got to be water baptized. He didn't use that because it's not what saves you. I conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's not how high on your hair, head your hair is piled and whether your dress is all the way down to the floor, whether you wear makeup or stuff like that. All of these rules and regulations are not what makes you right with God. You know, I know that the Lord is speaking to people right now who you've had a desire for God, you've gone to church, but you've been given so many rules and regulations and things that you have to do that you're just despairing that you could ever do it, that you could ever live that holy that you could ever do anything. And it's not that you dislike God or hate God. It's just that you aren't a hypocrite and you just cannot live up to this standard. And because of it, you've been keeping God at arm's length, thinking all of these things are what God demands. The Lord is speaking to many people right now. I mean, all over the world and giving you the same revelation that Martin Luther got back in the 1500s and showing you that it's not all of these things. It's not keeping all of the rules. It's not all of the regulations. It's just a matter of you putting faith 
in Jesus. And if you do that, then He gives you His righteousness. You become accepted with God through Jesus because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. And if you could receive it, God is setting you free right now. I mean, the Lord is just changing people. I know that right now there are people all over the world that are finally seeing it. Now, does this mean that you're, you just continue to go live in sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. But you accept salvation in spite of your sin. You don't have to get rid of everything and be holy before God will accept you. You just accept salvation as a gift. You start loving God, and as you do that, God will change you from the inside out. He will break the addictions in your life. He will get rid of the things that is giving Satan an inroad into your life and allowing Satan to just destroy you. But it'll come as a byproduct. It'll come from the inside out, not the outside in. And see, that's what these verses are talking about. In the next verse, verse 29, it says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And in our context today, you know, the Jews and Gentiles, Gentile was any person who was not a Jew. Today, salvation has passed primarily unto the Gentile church. And today, the way that we would talk about this is, that is he the God of the religious person, the person that's been going to church and the person that's been living right and doing all of these things and trying so hard? Is he not also the God of those who haven't been godly, those who have sinned so much that have failed so severely? Yes, he's the God of all of them too. In verse 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith this, in our context today, is talking about those who are keeping these rules and regulations. It's God who justifies them by faith and the uncircumcision. That means the non-churchgoer, the non-religious person, through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. And now, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins to start making his point by using two of the greatest examples in Scripture of people who, you know, had relationship with God and who were dominant in the Old Testament. The first one he talks about is Abraham. And he shows you that Abraham didn't keep the law. The law wasn't even given during Abraham's lifetime. It was 430 years after Abraham uh, was gone that the law came into being and Abraham was justified by faith in God, not by the keeping of all of these laws. So that's what he's talking about. Look at this in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. You know, just in the previous chapter, he had said up here in verse 27, Romans 3:27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. And so here he is illustrating that point. He says, if Abraham were justified by his own works, by his own good deeds, then he could boast. He could glory, but not before God. His goodness might be good compared to mine or compared to somebody else, but compared to God, every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in verse 3 it says, For what saith the Scripture? Here's what the Bible says about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, 
And in Genesis chapter 15 is where the Lord appeared unto Abraham, told him that if you can count the stars in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. And Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. The word accounted here just means that it was put to his account. God just counted him righteous. Abraham himself was not righteous. Abraham, in his own actions, did not deserve it. You know, I could spend a lot of time on this, but if you study the Old Testament scriptures at all, Abraham was not a perfect example. Abraham actually told his wife, Sarah, to lie and to say that she was just his sister. And he did this to protect his own life. He did it not once, he did it twice. The first time he told Abraham to do this, he was afraid she was so beautiful that people were going to kill him so that they could take his wife. And she was in her 60s. The second time he did this, she was in her 90s. And he still told her to lie and say that she was his sister because he was afraid somebody would kill him to get to Sarah. I tell you what, Sarah must have been one beautiful woman to be at 90 years old and a, and a husband afraid somebody is going to kill him uh, to be able to marry Sarah. And you know what? We look at this, and because it's in the Bible and it's a different culture, sometimes we don't think about it, but I guarantee you that was wrong. That is not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That is not defending your mate. You know, if I was to go into one of these other countries and say, for instance, uh, you know, I don't know, just go into any third world country or something, and if people wanted my wife, and if you heard that I had just said, hey, I've never seen this lady before, help yourself, go ahead and just do whatever. If I was to do that, I guarantee you it'd be a scandal, and rightly so. That is not the right thing to do, and it wasn't the right thing for Abraham to do also. Plus, if you turn over to Leviticus chapter 18, in that passage of Scripture, it lists what holy living, sexual uh, marriage, who, who you can marry. And you were forbidden to marry a woman who was a sister, a stepsister. And Sarah was the stepsister of Abraham. It was the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. Sarah was a stepsister. And according to Leviticus chapter 18, you cannot marry anybody who's near of kin, specifically the daughter of your father, but not the daughter of your mother. And if a person does that, Leviticus 18 says that you have to stone that person to death. You cannot show them mercy. They have to be cut off is the scriptural terminology for it. So if the law had been in effect, and the law was written 430 years later, you can see that in Galatians chapter 4, it talks about that. And the law was 430 years later, and it came and gave this command about not marrying a stepsister. If the law had been in effect, Abraham would have had to have been stoned to death. So Abraham violated the instructions of Leviticus chapter 18, he uh, lied about his wife and refused to take responsibility for her and be accountable to her. And all of those things, he broke the law. Plus, the biggie, the big thing for the Jews was circumcision. Now today, this was dealt with by the New Testament church. Acts chapter 15 dealt with this so detailed that it forever ended this discussion. You know, in the church today, nobody talks about circumcision and talk makes that an issue that you got to be circumcised before you can have a relationship with God.
And the reason that that's not an issue is because Paul settled it. But they actually are doing the exact same thing with just different rules and regulations. No longer is it circumcision, but now you got to be baptized a certain way. You've got to go to church. You've got to pay your tithes. You can't commit adultery. You can't lie. You can't steal and on and on. It's, it's the exact same principle. It's just now got different uh, things that people have to do. But with the Jews of Paul's day, the number one law that they had to observe was that every male had to be circumcised. And if you were not circumcised, you could not convert to Judaism. You could not have a relationship with God. And so Paul right here begins to show you that uh, in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, that happened before God even gave the command of circumcision. Now see what this did to the Jews of Paul's day. It just pulled the rug out from under them because they were saying, and there are scriptures in the Old Testament law that if a male in the Jewish religion was not circumcised, he had to be killed. And so it was non-negotiable and it was punishable by death if you didn't enforce this right of circumcision. And so they had gotten to where they just embraced this. And I mean, this was something they wouldn't compromise on. You can see this in the book of Galatians. Paul had gone in and preached to these non-Jews, these Gentiles, and had told them about relationship with God. They had received relationship with God by faith in what Jesus had done, and they had relationship with God. But then the legalistic Jews came and began to say, no, that's not enough. You've also got to convert to Judaism. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to start uh, observing their dietary laws and doing all of these things. And Paul heard about this, and this is why the book of Galatians was written. And I mean, Paul was vicious with them and says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You've turned away from Christ. You've fallen from grace. Christ is of none effect unto you. And he says over there in Galatians chapter 5 that circumcision, any person who uh, has put faith in Christ, if you go back and start observing these laws, specifically he was talking about circumcision, you have made the law the grace of none effect. Christ has become of none effect. You are fallen from grace. Man, those are strong statements. And so anyway, here he is dealing with this same thing. And again, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. A throwback to Genesis 15, 6. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Man, what a strong statement this is. His faith is counted for righteousness. What makes you righteous, right standing with God in the sight of God, is not your actions and your adherence to all of the religious rules and conditions, but it is your faith is counted unto you for righteousness. And look at this also in verse 5. Now this is going to throw some of you for a loop. But this, I'm reading this right out of the Bible. It says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. The word justify means to declare free from the guilt and the penalty attached to grievous sin. Or my layman's definition is it means to make you just as if I'd never sinned. It says he justifies the ungodly. He does not justify godly people. He only justifies ungodly people. 
Unless you accept and admit that you are ungodly, you cannot be justified. You cannot be declared free from the guilt and penalty attached to sin. And basically, religion today is saying, you've got to be godly before God will justify you. This is saying God justifies the ungodly. Only the ungodly. Unless you're ungodly, you can't be it right in the sight of God. I know that that just drives some religious people up the wall. No, you can't do that. You've got to be living holy. You've got to do all of these things. I'm saying you should live holy as a byproduct of relationship with God. But you cannot trust your holiness, your goodness, your righteousness as a stepping stone to relationship with God. You just have to come and receive that totally by grace. You cannot earn it. That is just nearly too good to be true news. Religion is saying you've got to be holy to be justified. The Bible says you've got to be ungodly before you can be justified. He, un he justifies the ungodly. And it's going to come back to Abraham in a moment. But now he goes back and he starts quoting from um, Psalms chapter 32. And so here in Romans chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose sins are, or whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Again, this is a quotation from David. So here he is trying to convince these Jews who were steeped in the Old Testament law that the only way you can ever have a relationship with God is by grace through faith and not of your own selves. And the way he did it was to show that Abraham had a relationship with God by grace through faith, not by law. He was not the most holy character in the Bible, and he quotes Scripture to show you that God just counted him righteous. He just gave him righteousness, not because he deserved it, but because he believed God. It was a righteousness that came by faith. It was faith righteousness. And then he starts quoting David, who again was one of the greatest examples of God using a person in the Bible. You know, outside of Moses, more is written about David than any other person in the Bible. And David wrote a large, large portion of the Bible, the Psalms. And so David is one of the main characters. And here's David saying the same thing that Paul was saying. In other words, just like you go back to Romans chapter 3 and in verse 21, it says that this righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament law prophesied that all of this was going to happen and that there was going to come a new way of relating to God outside of the Old Testament law. And here's David. This is another proof. He saw it. He prophesied about this. And he was speaking about the day that you and I live in. Blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven. Did you know in David's day in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Jesus, nobody was totally forgiven of sins? I could go into a great teaching on this. I'm not going to go into that detail. But in the Old Testament, sins were covered. It's like the sin was still there, but you just put something over it so that God couldn't see it. It was covered, but the sin was still there. It's like a tumor or something. It was still there, but you just hide it so that you can't see it. But in the New Covenant, our sins aren't covered. They are removed. 
they are gone. They are obliterated. Sin doesn't exist. There is a huge difference between sins being covered and sins being forgiven. In the Old Testament, they would talk about their sins forgiven, but they were forgiven in a sense like on credit. In other words, it's like you give somebody your credit card and they go ahead and give you the merchandise, but you hadn't really paid for it yet. You, there's still a bill that's going to come and you'll have to pay for it at a later date. In a sense, that's the way it was in the Old Testament. The only way you could talk about people's sins being forgiven, they were forgiven on credit, looking forward to what Jesus was going to do for us. But in the New Testament, our sins aren't forgiven on credit. They aren't just covered. It's not that we go ahead and get the merchandise without paying for it. No, it's been paid for. Jesus paid for our sins, and we aren't looking forward to a payment. We're looking back to what Jesus has already done. Our sins are totally atoned for. They are gone. If you've been born again, you do not have any sin. You know, the church that I was raised in, they used to use this example of a two-before. And I remember as a kid, a preacher literally taking a two-before and he drove nails into it. And then he says, these nails are like sins that are penetrating your life. And he says, here's this sin. And he named different sins and he drove it in. And he says, but when you come to Jesus, Jesus removes your sin. He takes it away. And he began to pull these nails out one by one. But then he showed the two before and he says, see all the holes? They're still there. You're still scarred. You're an old sinner saved by grace. God has removed the sin, but you still are this sinner that's just limping through life and you're inferior and the devil and all these things. But you know what? As I've come to study the Word, that is not an accurate representation. You could use the board to say that's you. You could use nails to say those are sins. But when you get born again, God takes that old spirit that was corrupted and had all of this sin in it, and He just literally takes it and throws it away and gives you a brand new board. <laughs> and you become a brand new spirit. And there is no trace of sin. There isn't any results. Now, you may have some results in your body, in your mind, you might still remember and have heartache and, and problems from the sins that you've committed. Other people may treat you differently, but in your spirit, John 4, 24 says God is a spirit. And in your spirit, that old you was taken away with the sin and it's literally dead, gone. It is non-existent. It doesn't even exist. And God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And God sees you in the spirit and in the spirit, there isn't any sin. He doesn't see an old two-by-four with the nails removed, but the holes and the damage is still there. No, you are a brand new person. And, you know, I don't know about this analogy that I'm using, you know, exactly, but I, I believe it would be proper to say it's not even a two-by-four now. It's a piece of steel or something that sin can't even penetrate it. It'll never mar your spirit again. It'll never be corrupted again. You have a totally brand new spirit. And this is what uh, David was making reference to. He says, blessed. He was looking forward and, and envying us and saying, blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is not talking about God just forgiving past sins, but then the sins that you commit now, every sin's got to get under the blood. And then the ones that you commit next week, next year, you got to go back and you lose your standing with God and you got to come back into right standing with God. This is talking about blessed is the man whom the Lord will not, even talking about future tense sins. 
When you get born again, God took all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins, and He nailed them all to His cross. He has forgiven you of all sins, past, present, and future, and the Lord will not impute. The word impute means to hold against sins against you. Man, that is nearly too good to be true news. Man, that's awesome. So, we come down to Romans chapter 4, and in verse 9, it says, Cometh this blessedness, and this is talking about the blessing that David spoke of. This was a quotation from Psalms chapter 32. Is this blessing that David gave, is it limited only to the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was uh, reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Now, the issue of circumcision for being in relationship with God was settled by the New Testament church. So that today, you know, the church doesn't make an issue out of this. But it's the exact same principle. So every time here that circumcision is talked about, you could just insert into it uh, any of these religious practices that are still preached and promoted today. It's like the destination is exactly the same. It's the same road. You've just changed vehicles. You know, you now are using a different vehicle, but you're going in the same direction. You're headed to the same place. So remember that as we read through this. So in verse 10, Romans 4:10, How is it then reckoned? This is talking about righteousness given to Abraham. How is it reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? And of course, the answer to that is not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had being yet, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. And so again, this goes all the way back to the story of Abraham recorded in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham that if you can count the stars in the heaven, number the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. And so this is the point that he's making. When was it that Abraham became righteous? Genesis 15, 6 makes it very clear. He believed God and it became righteous in Genesis 15. And it was in the 17th chapter of Genesis when God gave uh, Abraham the command about circumcision. Let me just read that unto you. In uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, And God said to Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in his house or bought with money or any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that sh soul shall be cut off 
from his people, for he hath broken my covenant. The word cut off here, there's other scriptures. I'm not going to take time to turn over to it, but it's talking about put to death. That's talking about a death sentence. In other words, this covenant of circumcision was non-negotiable. If you didn't do it, you had to put the people to death. And yet, in the new covenant, this was what the law prescribed in the new covenant. They said, you don't have to do that anymore. And I could go through uh, Acts chapter 15 and many other places. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul specifically did not circumcise Titus. Titus was a Gentile, and when he converted to Christianity, he specifically did not circumcise him just to show the Jews that you do not have to do this for salvation. But according to the Old Testament law, you had to be put to death if you didn't do that. So for anybody who's paying attention, which it's amazing how many people don't pay attention. They don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. But if you're paying attention, there must be a change between the way it was done in the Old Covenant, what you had to do to be in right standing with God, and what you have to do in the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, this was shown because the point that he's making is that Abraham had this experience with God in Genesis 15, 6, believed him and was counted righteous. And it wasn't until the 17th chapter that he was commanded to circumcise himself and his son. And this was after Ishmael was already a teenage boy. Most people believe he was somewhere around 13 or 17 years old. So 17, up to 17 years after Abraham had already been declared righteous and had relationship with God was when this law command came. And Paul is making the point that if you paid attention to the scriptures, you would have to conclude that these acts of righteousness, specifically this act of circumcision, is not a prerequisite to having relationship with God. Likewise today, you do not have to live holy in order to have God accept you. You know, as a matter of fact, let me just, you know, I'm, I'm going to be real blunt here, but, you know, I'm taking all this from Scripture, so I hope you don't take offense at it. But I think that the reason that God made the covenant and made this act of circumcision the sign of the covenant because it's meant to be personal. I mean, could you imagine Abraham walking around and pulling up his robe and said, look at my circumcision. No, you don't do things like that. The reason he did this is because it's supposed to be something personal between you and God. But today, see, people go around and they flaunt their holiness and look at me and I do this and I'm holy and I'm better than you. One of the reasons God, I believe, gave the sign of circumcision is because it was something private between you and God. And it would be reflected later on in the way you act, but it was a sign of the covenant between you and God. And it's amazing today how the religious people are going around flaunting their holiness. They're totally missing the point of the whole thing. This is not how God intended it to be. And so in verse 13, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There it is in black and white. Abraham did not have relationship with God through keeping some set of laws, through doing certain things, but it was because he believed God and that was counted unto him for righteousness. You do not have to live holy in order to be accepted by God.